how do we create these cultures where I feel so comfortable? I feel so connected to the people around me that I'm, you know, the term of art is discretionary effort. I'm going to put in the discretionary effort so that our community of humans that are, we call those work colleagues, that community is going to be successful. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of leadership and practical love for competitive advantage in your business and workplace. Please share the episode with a friend and help us to spread the Love in Action movement globally. So my guest today is a renowned neuroscientist whom I've been covering for years on my Inc. Magazine column. Now, I'm gonna tell you his name in a minute, okay? But his research has fascinated me, so I had to bring him on the show. Now, check this out. In the brain research that my guest and his team conducted well over a decade ago, now they discovered that the neurochemical oxytocin is actually the key driver of trust, love, and morality that distinguish our humanity. So, well, naturally, like any good and proactive scientist would do, (laughs) he shared that finding with the world in his first book, which was titled The Moral Molecule. So as my guest followed the science, his two decades of, of brain research took him from the Pentagon to Fortune 50 boardrooms to the rainforest of Papua New Guinea, And all of this in quest to understand the neuroscience of human connection, human happiness, and and how all that relates to effective teamwork and great leadership and the building of great company cultures is what we're really after. His second amazing book is really how I found out about him. It's called Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. That was released back in 2017. So many of you by now know exactly who I'm talking about. The one and only Paul Zak is joining us. Paul is professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. He's an author, a five-time TEDx speaker. He's given talks in over 30 countries. And I just talked to him offline before we hit record, and he's off to Denmark. So Paul is in the top 0.3% of the most cited scientists in the world. And I am geeked up about having you finally here, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marcel. With that introduction, there's no way we can do anything but go down. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's going to get worse from here. Well, shoot. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been tracking you, you know, I've been written, writing about you and you're finally here. So I, I'm really jazzed about this. And we always start with just kind of a, a way to, for you to introduce yourself and give us like a story about you and maybe a two minute version of, you know, what, what's your story? What's your purpose? What's your why? First of all, I'm a Martian, so I don't really understand the humans. That's why I have to spend all these years running experiments. But I find them to be a fascinating species. And ultimately, I'm a tool guy. So my goal in my professional life is to create technologies and knowledge to help people curate their lives for greater happiness. Mm. And that's really what I've been doing is understanding where happiness comes from in your personal life, in your work life. When you go to a movie, 
And having tools and sharing those tools is something I just love to do. That's awesome. Well, I'll touch on that a little bit towards the end of the show because we need to talk about immersion. But for now, I for, by the way, I forgot to mention, Paul, that you also have the best title in the world. <laughs> the media actually kind of adopted it for you. You want to share about that? So Fast Company some years ago outed me as Dr. Love. At first, I was a little embarrassed. I'm you know, a serious scientist. On the other hand, we get to talk about love and title of your podcast from a scientific perspective. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So I'm really happy I have that that title. Yeah, Dr. Love, Dr. Love. Okay, so let's unpack. Paul, this is funny because uh, we were talking offline. This is going to be sort of a, a trip down memory lane for you because the research that we're talking about that led to your books and especially Trust Factor, it's going back, what, 13, 14, maybe 15 years ago now, right? Mm-hmm. Almost yeah. 20, right. Yeah, 20. Okay, so... I think we need to start from, from the beginning. So what would be a good starting point for you? Just really asking why anyone behaves in a good or appropriate way. I mean, it's the most basic question, right? It comes from the, the book of Genesis and the Bible, good and evil. So, you know, I try to take on small questions people haven't thought much about. So the kind of core question we started with is, if no one's watching you, why would you ever do a virtuous or good thing? So again, I'm not talking about you as a person. I'm talking about behaviors, behaviors I can measure. If I have to get into your personality and your genetics, is this a different story? And we've done some of that work, but people do all kinds of good things when it really doesn't give them any external benefit. They may get an internal benefit, feel good about themselves. I'd give money to homeless or help somebody. Or So why are we doing that? And why in every culture around the planet do we have a version of the golden rule, which is if you're nice to me, Marcel, I'll be nice to you. Usually I'll be nice to you in return. So that somehow taps into our human social nature. So I want to understand that human sociality. Yeah. Okay. So walk us through that research that eventually led you to want to find out about more about how trust works and what did you find in, about the brain? I mean, I already said oxytocin. So the cat's out of the bag. Cat's out of the bag, right? Exactly. <laughs> so we're really looking at this, this, you know, functional way. So economists out of Vernon Smith's lab and Nobel Prize winner economics had created this task when you could share money with a stranger, it grows in size, but then that person controls it and they can share some back with you, but they don't have to. And it turns out that almost everyone reciprocates. So people, so this is thought to measure trust and trustworthiness. I'm going to send you money. You, everyone knows what's going on. It's anonymous. It's by computer. And I'm going to take some of my money ship it to you so that it, the pie grows, and then you can either keep it or send some back to me. So Vernon Smith, who was a real mentor for me, said, we have no idea why people do this. Why not just keep your money? Like money, good. This is I call this caveman economics. Me like money, money, good, me keep. <laughs> so we basically, I basically stole from the animal literature and created a tool, because I'm a tool guy, to measure the acute production in the brain of oxytocin in humans with repeated blood draws and we showed that the more someone trusts you, the more your brain produces this neurochemical oxytocin, mm. and the more you will reciprocate for the person, almost always. And the almost always is very interesting. Who doesn't get that response is work we've also done. Let's hold that for now. But oxytocin has a bunch of interesting behavioral effects. So it kind of connects us to others. So it kind of melts this other divide. So you're really nice to me. And now you're, my brain perspective, you're like my brother. So I'm going to be nice to my brother. The second is increases our sense of empathy. Right. So now I not only understand what you're doing, but I have a sense of why this is important to you. And now you can, and, uh, and then it also reduces physiologic stress. So now I'm more comfortable. I'm now embedded in a community or a group. So from those three things, trust, empathy, and embedded in a community, you can see that the leap into team and organizational performance is quite direct, right? That's exactly what I want on teams. I want teams that 
have each other's back, trust, understand each other, right? We can be like a jazz quartet. I understand why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm committed to the outcomes for the group. I have this sort of sense of purpose that we're all in this together. We're going to pull together. And so that really led from doing the basic science and really the sort of uh, psychopathology on why people are good social creatures and why also we see evilness and crime and all that into organizational performance. Okay, so just so I get this right, is that it's not that oxytocin leads to trust, which leads to all these great other great things at work. No, if at first you have to get to the point where you're developing trust amongst coworkers and having a safe environment and your leader is serving you well. And then that with that, your brain produces more oxytocin, which then helps you to do things like increase your empathy and reduce your stress, right? And feel like you belong. Then my tracking right here starts with the trust and then that increases the brain chemical. Exactly right. So that's that's where the, the culture comes in, right? I've got to give this gift of trust, give this behavior of trust to somebody else. That'll induce uh, oxytocin release in their brain. They generally reciprocate and that causes oxytocin release in my brain. So it's this reciprocal oxytocin release. So now we have to talk about can I create an environment in which that reciprocal oxytocin release, trust, empathy occur? And that is a really interesting problem that I know you worked on. I've certainly worked on a lot, which is how do we create these cultures where I feel so comfortable? I feel so connected to the people around me that I'm, you know, the term of art is discretionary effort. I'm going to put in the discretionary effort so that our community of humans that are, we call those work colleagues, that community is going to be successful. Bring us back a little bit to, okay, well, you had to test this out with different populations and that got you into the rainforest of Papua New Guinea. So make the connection there. I mean, what was the reason for you going there? What did you find? Yeah, so we started doing this work. So we measured done about 10,000 blood draws in the last 20 years. So yeah. we measured oxytocin in blood. And as you know, we also developed a protocol to safely infuse synthetic oxytocin into the human brain, which we've done about 700 times. So we can show that it's causal. It's actually oxytocin causing these greater empathy, greater teamwork, right? So we know that, you know, it's a, and it's been replicated by many people. And then as we started doing this, and, you know, I would talk to nice people like you and, you know, I started having this worry. This is the value of worry. So I think the most important word in science is the word bullshit. And I want to make sure what I was saying was, was it's about getting rid of bullshit, right? It's about replication and transparency and and like, you know, every study we've done up to about 10 years ago was done in, in Europe or the US, Western educated, healthy individuals. So I had an opportunity to do field work in Papua New Guinea, which is the Stone Age. So I was in a, in a, the Western Highlands in a village of a thousand people in the rainforest. There are 700 different languages in Papua New Guinea. This is how wow. isolated these tribes are. Yeah. And we had an anthropologist to work with them with lots of permissions and these tribesmen had never been to a doctor or dentist. So I went in there and built a little medical hut and I took blood before and after. They did a, a standard ritual that they do before they do group work. Does that sound familiar? Yes, that's what we do too. And indeed, they release oxytocin and the behavioral effects was, oh yeah, this ritual prepares us to do, they live in a community, they have to do group work like everybody else. And so it really prepares that. And we find the physiology seems to be happening everywhere. Now, one key question that I said we talk about in a second, is who doesn't get this? So we have done a lot of work, for example, on psychopaths, criminal psychopaths. They lack this empathic response, right? That's Mm. classic. That's about 2% of the population. So it means no matter how good you are at hiring, 2% of the people you hire are going to be, you know, non-remediable. You have to cut these people loose. You can't, you know, work with them and you just, they just, 
they're self-serving, they're, they don't have that empathy response. If I did something that hurt you personally or hurt your feelings, I would feel bad. That's normal human empathy. That's what connects us as social creatures. Right. Uh, we're very sensitive to social information driven in part by oxytocin, but the psychopaths don't have that. So from a leadership perspective, yeah, 2%, got to cut them loose. Okay. So is this about the time where you, you had enough data to go on to actually create the survey instrument? And can you talk us through then, because that led you to studying several thousand companies, which is, I think, where we want to go next. <laughs> right, exactly. So then, you know, so again, key, key points for listeners. Trust is a set of behaviors, not a feeling state. It's a set of behaviors, how I interact with other people, how they interact with me. And so once we identified the sets of behaviors that were relevant to trust within organizations, yes, we created this survey. We validated it. It was based on lots of experiments in my lab and in field studies and companies like Zappos and Herman Miller and lots of others that let us in there and let us take blood from their employees, which is crazy cool, and really measure whether that survey was capturing these oxytocin effects. Yeah, and then collected data from a huge swath of the U.S. population to really identify not only are these behaviors related to trust, but how do they improve performance of these organizations? Yeah, and we're going to talk about that next. What basically what you identified as eight management behaviors, right, that foster trust. Paul and I are going to tackle that after a quick break. Hang tight. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. If you haven't heard, my leadership development course is now in full swing and it's getting great reviews. It's called From Boss to Leader. And if you like the theme of the podcast, you're going to love this course. It's intended for leaders and managers that want to learn real leadership competencies, you know, the everyday stuff that you need to engage and inspire your team or company. To learn more about the From Boss to Leader course, you can visit my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Virtual Training. Okay, we're back. So, Paul, you found through the survey instrument, you studied several thousand companies, some of my favorites, Google, Zappos, et cetera. And what did you identify? Yeah, so we found these eight foundations for organizational trust that are sets of behaviors that are manageable, right? You can measure and manage those for higher trust and higher performance. So again, culture is this giant word, but we know a lot about one aspect of that, which is trust. We know that this impact on performance the level of countries, at the level of individuals, the level of organizations is powerful. And so these eight factors somehow magically, Marcel, have the acronym oxytocin. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but yeah, we created a survey so that, and then worked with a, with a training company to release the survey so people could actually measure trust and create interventions to raise trust. And so I won't go through all those eight factors, but they are deeply informed by the neuroscience. So uh, the first one, O, is for ovation, which is my word for recognizing high performers. So listeners go, geez, you know, that was like week one in business school, man, this ain't new. But actually, here's where the science comes in. We know that recognition has the biggest effect on brain and behavior when it is close in time to when the goal has been met or exceeded, when it's public, when it's personal, when it's tangible, when it comes from peers, right? So I can create recognition programs that a signal to my community that we value high performers and we do that in a tangible public way that says you're important. So if you, I know you love coffee, Marcel. So you were in my team and you have just finished this long three month project and our next all hands meeting, our monthly meeting, 
I come in with this big basket of super fancy coffees, not that crappy Starbucks stuff, but really, really good coffee. And I don't know, biscuits and I don't know, whatever else like. I was like, hey, Marcel just just led this amazing project. So we're going to celebrate doing that. But also we're going to set aspirations among everybody else. We all like to be recognized, right? So now we're saying, oh, this is what we value in our organization. But that ovation period is also a chance to debrief. Okay, Marcel, tell us how you did that. Mm. And I've done hundreds and hundreds of these with companies. And inevitably, the person being recognizable, you know, it wasn't just me. Sue helped me solve this real problem. And I, ha- I lost some data and Bob found it on the server and got it back. So now we're learning about best practice by having this ovation period. It's essentially a debrief to identify what to do, what not to do, and how to pull on these social resources. If you lose data, talk to Bob. He's the guy, right? So that's really useful knowledge. And it can go further, right? You can actually also talk about fail, celebrating fails. Very common in Silicon Valley, the monthly pizza and beer, congratulations, you screwed up and you get the the dummy award or whatever. Hey, you're getting this award for what was the biggest mistake you made this month? Now, why would we do that? Number one, I want to, I want to encourage innovation. I want to encourage small mistakes and learning, but also I want to spread that learning widely. So that's a culture issue, right? I'm saying- yeah. We want people to take some risk. Now, if you're a leader, your job is to be the risk mitigator. I should be doing daily check-ins, right? I should have milestones. I don't want these people to spin off for 18 months, burn a million dollars on something that's not useful, right? I want to see, okay, we're trying this new thing. I want to give you some leeway to see if this is better than the old thing, but also want to have limits on how far we're going to go. Right. Okay. I'm going to throw one at you. And I'm going to, I'm working off of the Harvard Business Review article that you actually wrote when the book came out or before the book came out. So Here's the statement and then tie it into your nifty little oxytocin acronym and go from there. So I love this because I think that people have to have autonomy and freedom and ownership. And I got this from the HBO article, give people greater control over how they work. Right. So that's in psychology called this locus of control. So if you own that project, then you take more pride in getting it done. And you then can also be recognized, right? The order of those oxytocin factors matters. So the ovation is the first thing. And then I want to set up everything else. So what many organizations do, what my company does is we denote what we call a primary. This is your project. You're the primary on this. We build a team around you. You may not be the most senior person. It's moved around. So everyone gets the chance to run a project. You have goals, you have milestones. Your direct report is more of a coach than a boss. They're here doing this check-in to make sure you're making progress. And then you own that project. You get the recognition of that project, which also means hold the horses. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to make a bunch of mistakes because you haven't run exactly this project before. And in high-trust organizations, those mistakes are valued. Mistakes, positive mistakes, positive deviations from the norm we call innovation. Negative deviations we call mistakes. So you can't have innovation without having some mistakes. And again, the leader's job is to be that risk mitigator and make sure we're not spending too much time on those mistakes. But when I give over that locus of control to a project, even to a junior person, he or she's just going to do it differently. So that can be valuable. If I can again go back in the ovation, the debrief and go, oh, here's the positive deviation we found. And here's the negative deviation. Don't do that anymore. We tried that already. That doesn't work. So for example, we work with hospitals and you think, oh my God, hospitals have to work in a zero error world. Yeah. No, in fact, there are hospital errors all the time. And so in the hospitals, we basically devolved or helped them devolve down decision-making towards uh, nurses who actually spend more time with patients than do physicians. Yeah. And they saw, again, greater discretionary effort, greater lock-in. 
These are your patients, right? You want to be the advisor to the doctor who may only see that patient five minutes a day. You know a lot. And letting those nurses make more decisions, for example, on medications. Doctors are happier. They're getting much more feedback and valuable feedback. Like clinicians are telling them um, fewer medical mistakes, but a quote, less trained person caring for that patient. So again, I want to make sure that if there's a mistake, we fix that right away. We'll make sure there's not a, it's not a fatal mistake in the, in the medical sense or in the, you know, business sense and nothing that's going to turn the ship down. But, you know, really taking the person who has the most knowledge about that and empowering him or her to run with that project, again, with supervision. Okay. Here's one and tie it into uh, where it fits under the oxytocin letters. Okay. It's a leader or a culture that commits to the whole person development, right? Especially, I mean, we're not all the way out of the pandemic and we have the threat of the, the Delta variant. So people are still, and a lot of people might go back to remote. We don't know. So that means that the aspect of mental health is still so crucial these days. And so talk about this whole person development that actually may involve things like well-being and employee health and things like that. Yeah, great question. So again, oxytocin is really associated with emotional well-being, right? How am I connecting to my humans, my community around me? So the precursor for trust is psychological safety. If Mm -hmm. I am so stressed out that I just, I'm holding on with my fingernails for the next 10 minutes, I'm not going to be a good team member. I'm not going to connect to those around me. I'm not going to have the bandwidth to be an effective employee. So first thing is really establishing psychological safety. And as you said, that's really relevant today as we start bringing people back into the office and we've got to make sure that they're comfortable. I think it's also really relevant. We have severe labor shortages all around the world. As we have more inclusive workplaces, I want to make sure that we're actually assessing psychological safety on a fairly granular level so that people feel comfortable. So once I have that established, I can have this culture of trust. And then what do we know from what it takes to be a successful human? Growth, mastery are really important things. So if you're using this high trust model, I don't need to do the annual review with you because I'm giving you feedback every day as your supervisor. And so many companies have, have evolved that annual meeting, which stresses people out. First of all, neurologically, it's too late. It happened nine months ago. It's irrelevant. Anything that happens more than a week ago in your brain is just ancient history. It's not going to have any impact on future behavior. So it's really tough. So that's why the constant feedback is really part of the key neuroscience of high performance. Yeah. So take that annual review and do a forward-looking, what I call whole person review. So let's focus on going forward. So that's professional growth, personal growth, and what I would call spiritual growth for lack of a better word. So professional growth is where do you want to be in the next couple of years? Are we helping you get there? So I like to ask this provocative question, which is, what do you want your next job to be? And it's interesting. Some people say, you know, I really want to work for Facebook. I really like to get a job at Google. Awesome. Right. In this world of very rare high performers, I want to keep those people in my orbit. So I have a lot of former employees that work in tech companies, and I'm the first person to write a letter for them. If that's good, I'm investing in the human, not in the human capital. If you really want to work for Google, I'm going to write you a letter. I'm going to encourage you. Why? Now I got a guy at Google right? That I can talk to. I can do a project with Google. So the first is talk about professional growth. So that provocative question is a way to get into that. The second is personal growth. How's your family? How are your kids? If your family life sucks, believe me, you're not going to be an effective employee. So I don't want an employee coming off as saying, I got to quit because my wife has said we have to move back to Chicago because her family's from there. We can't handle our kids. And okay, let's do that in advance. Let's talk about that. Is your family happy here? Hey, we have an office in Chicago. 
if you want to move to Chicago, let's make that happen. Give me a month. I can make that happen. But don't quit because you're a high performer. And the third is what I call spiritual growth, which is besides work and family, what are you doing to make sure you feel like you're a valuable human being for your time on the planet, right? Is that volunteering at your kid's school? Is that some uh, avocation that you love to do? You're a sailor, let's say, Marcel. And do you have time for that For that hobby? Do you have time for that? Because if that part's missing, again, you're not going to be a whole person and you can't not bring your whole person to work. So if there's a whole hole with an H in you, then the whole person with a W can't really come to work. So what you're really saying, and so when you mentioned a while back that you have to assess psychological safety, safety on a granular level, this is what we're talking about, assess the areas of professional growth, personal growth, and spiritual growth to make sure that they are, that you're hitting all the, all the marks of make, of helping the employee become a whole person. W H. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So, and, and I think that none of those are possible without, to me, the most important one of the eight, which is the caring part, which is intentionally building relationships. And, and then the empathy one kicks in here. Talk to us through right. that one and the importance so- of that. I think we've been sold this bill of goods for 500 years that there's a work you and there's personal you. There's just a you, right? So if you're spending cognitive energy putting on this facade at work, even like the clothing, one of the nice about COVID is that we can just wear casual clothes now. I hope that carries over to the office. Why do we have to wear a tie? The French imposed this on us 300 years ago. <laughs> we don't need a tie. So anyway, I have a neck. Guess what? I really have a neck. I don't have to hide it. So I think, you know, when we are bringing our authentic selves to work, then we're able to form those connections around those around us. So we're told like, work you has got to be, have a straight back and be very severe and not have, I spoke to a, a guy in Australia yesterday and he said, when I talk about joy at work with my clients, one of the, uh, uh, sorry, this was in Germany, not in Australia. He said, the only time for joy is Christmas. Well, God, if you don't enjoy your job, Oof, I don't want you here, man. If, yeah. you, if this doesn't turn you on, if you're not excited about this, you got to go somewhere else, right? Yeah. So we live in a world in which many of us are privileged to actually love what we do. Are you going to put extra effort in if you love what you do? Now we're back to love, right? So yeah. if you have this caring connection to the people around you, which is what human beings do, put us in a community, we're going to form connections. So that's natural. Believe me, if you're the boss, you can go off for happy hour with your direct reports. They know who writes the check. There's no big deal, right? So many people work with me for years and years, by the way, with me, not for me. I tell them I love them all the time, male and female. Then from the filia sense, right? They know that I deeply care about them. I'm invested in them as human beings. And again, many of these have left working with me and I stay in touch with them. They are important humans in my life. I don't want to lose them. So building those caring relationships is the foundation for trust. It's the foundation for psychological safety. It's an opportunity to build your social network, which is where most of our life satisfaction comes from. And this, this, maybe this Gallup question, right? Do you have a best friend at work? Right. That kind of thing. Why one? Why not have eight best friends at work? I'm really privileged to work with some of my very best friends because I've known them for 15 or 20 years. And one of the beautiful things about getting older, Marcel, is you know, having, I've had friends for, I don't know, 40 years, 35 years, like, wow, that's a deep connection. So if you can start building those caring connections at work, even for someone you've known for a couple of years, doesn't mean you don't demand accountability from them, right? So yeah. none of this trust means I'm closing my eyes and just hoping things happen. No, everyone's accountable. In fact, they're more accountable because you own this project. You have milestones. I'm going to coach you to reach those milestones. I love my kids to death. They are accountable. Believe me. 
they make a mistake, I got to go have a talk with them. Right. Because I want to help them get the hell out of my house and be independent humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, this one is, uh, I'm, you know, with my clients, when I coach executives, I see this a lot, middle managers is hoarding information. They don't share information. They don't share resources. They're not transparent. And this speaks to one of the eight that you found, which is openness. I mean, it seems so common sense, right, Paul? But it's not common practice. Openness. You say sharing information broadly with colleagues. I mean, that's common sense stuff, right? Because that builds trust, but it's not happening. So again, one of the factors that inhibits trust is that we talked about high levels of stress. So if I don't have information, I'm creating a world of uncertainty, which is a process in the brain exactly like stress. Humans don't like uncertainty. Animals don't like uncertainty. Kids don't like uncertainty. So if you don't tell me what's happening, guess what's going to go on? Humans do this thing. Did you hear? Are we getting laid off? Are we being fired? What's happening? Right. So now sudden I'm using bandwidth on BS rumors rather than focusing on job one, which is creating value for my organization. So I can reduce that rumor mill if I share information broadly. So that's having town halls, it's having listening meetings. It's being accountable when you put out a survey, share the results and be honest. I've done so many work like you have in organizations where you collect some data and then when you go to present it, and they go, yeah, we all knew that. These are the weak areas. Yeah, no surprise. Okay, great. Now we've got to do something with that. So yeah, reduce that. So a number of organizations, Buffer is one of my great examples, which is an online media optimization, social media optimization company. They've practiced radical transparency. They publish um, all their financial reports. Their emails are published. Ray Dalio has talked about this in his book as well. So let's just release everything because guess what? Everyone's got one of these little cameras everywhere with them at all times. Trader Joe's does this, Whole Foods. They pay their employees to actually understand and read those financial statements. So let's let it go. And then again, everyone can be accountable. So at uh, Trader Joe's, for example, a company I know very well, if they have to close a store, nobody is surprised, right? They've seen the financials or they'll know which department within that store is losing money. So the meat department's losing money. Okay, let's talk about that, right? What can we do to help that? I like this job, right? I want to keep working here. We talked about love, loving your job. So how do I help the meat department manager get better at his job or her job, right? So again, no surprises. And then if it's going to close, they'll try to you know reallocate those individuals to nearby stores. So it's really not giving people surprises. Focus them on letting them do their job. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Okay, so now the question is, why does this all this stuff matter? Because there's a return on trust. And in case my senior leader listeners and chief HR people want to know the return on trust, I want to read some data that uh, I got from Paul. You know, so we're going back to 2017, but I think that I think that the stats remain. These things have not gone away. So here's I'm quoting from Paul now. Compared with people at low trust companies. People at high trust companies report, here's the numbers, 74% less trust, 106% more energy at work, 50% higher productivity, 13% fewer sick days, 76% more engagement, 29% more satisfaction with their lives. And this is especially true now, but I'm citing 2017 stats. I'm wondering about this now, Paul, 40% less burnout. So. And the last one is compared with employees at low trust companies, 50% more of those working at high trust organizations plan to stay with their employer over the next year. I'm curious about now with this whole great resignation that supposedly is going to happen, right? How this plays out in a kind of a a post-pandemic era. 
And 88% more said that they would recommend their company to family and friends as a place to work. So they become brand ambassadors. Oh my goodness. Okay. It cannot get any more clear than that, but can you refresh the conversation maybe to the current times that we're in? I mean, what would you add to that? And are these things still holding true? Yeah, as far as we can tell, in fact, potentially more true. So if you think about the investment you can make to improve performance, trust is a dimension that is actually fairly inexpensive to invest in, but the returns are very high. So the ROI is a big plus. So think about creating a culture where your high performers can thrive, can grow, can feel recognized, and have the opportunity to control their work lives. And that's a dimension that doesn't cost a lot of money to create. So one of those now is telecommuting. So a lot of pushback, Silicon Valley, near where I live, to Apple and Google saying, y'all got to be back in the office by September. We go, nah, actually, no. So who said, many people said it, Marcel, you probably know, but the war for talent is over, talent has won. So that's the world we're in now. So if you're a leader, think about creating an environment where these high performers, these very talented individuals can flourish. Almost nobody leaves their job, quits their job for salary. Mostly it's because I hate my boss, I hate what I'm doing, I hate whatever. So let's create an environment of love, of discretionary effort, and really create this environment where you have levers that are not not expensive. So ovation is an easy one. Having a monthly ovation where I'm recognizing high performers. Man, spend a hundred bucks on a on a basket of coffee or some muffins or something that. So if it's personal, if I'm recognizing Marcel versus Bob, Bob likes something different. So personalizing this is really important. It's not just generic. It's not the uh, employee of the month parking place. That's BS, right? If it's personal, it says, oh, this is something you care about. I know, I, your supervisor, know about you and I'm connected to you because I care about you as a human. So I'm going to give you something for you. But how much does that cost? So 100 bucks a month times 12, 1200 bucks a year. Can you not get more than $1,200 of extra productivity out of your team because of this? If you can't, then I don't think you're being a very good manager. So yeah. um, Anyway, you know, I think these are, this is a dimension that's not expensive, mostly not expensive. The invest component's expensive. If I'm paying for additional training for you, I am making a, what a sign of trust. I'm committing to pay to upskill you on the assumption that, you know, you're actually going to generate a return in the years. One of my long-term clients for immersion is Accenture. Accenture, which is about half a million employees around the world, produces $1 billion of training annually for their employees on $42 billion of revenue. So what a commitment they have made and their turnover is really low. Yeah. Well, as we wind down here, Paul, let me transition to, you know, I want to make sure that my listeners know that you're not just a neuroscience nerd (laughs) doing a bunch of research, but you are a very successful entrepreneur. So I want to shed some light on the tech startup that you founded. We talked about it before. So walk us through the immersion platform and some of the technology that's available to the public. Thank you, Marcel. Yeah. So uh, Immersion Neuroscience is my five-year-old startup, which has democratized neuroscience. So we've created a platform that allows anybody to measure in real time, any place people are, what the brain loves. So are your employees digging what they're doing? What parts of their job are really interesting? Are your communications effective? Let's test that. So we've written algorithms that us infer brain activity from the smartwatch that people already own, download an app, and you can actually test content, environments, culture. We have clients uh, like Accenture uh, using this for training, using it for organizational transformation. Who's your super fan? Who's on board with you? Well, you can actually find that out neurologically. If not using personal information, you can find 
categories of individuals. And so being able to measure, you know, outside a lab, any place people are, including while people work at home, for example, I think it's a real breakthrough. So don't we all want to know, have a great experience? Customers want it and employees want it, right? So how do we know it's a good experience? If we ask you about your unconscious emotional state, people just lie because we don't, we don't have access to that consciously. You can try it free trial, uh, getimmersion.com with an I. Go and try yourself. Again, get rid of the bullshit. You think I'm full of crap? <laughs> Download the app, I love uh, it. watch a movie and measure it. And uh, you'll see second by second, you know, what you dig, what your brain's turned on. So I think why it's important from a culture perspective, Marcel, is that yeah. uh, highly immersive experiences are enjoyable. So now we're actually creating this workplace where I'm turned on. I love what I'm doing, right? Just like you, we, you talked about this, right? We are both excitable people. We are blessed to work in areas that just give us so much happiness to help other people be more productive. And so I'll work 15 yeah. hours a day. It doesn't bother me because I just love it. So how do I find that for my employees? They might, may not even know, but actually being able to monitor them, uh, which we have clients using our technology to do with consent, of course. Like, wouldn't you want to quantify your workday and find out what do you love doing? And then also, what kind of frustrates you? What is not your best thing? Great. Give me more of the stuff I love doing and give me less of the stuff that frustrates me. That could be a game changer, Paul. Man, I appreciate that you're actually tying in the, the neuroscience to technology and bridging the two now to offer these products. That's fantastic. Hey, before we come to a close here, I want to make sure that I did not forget anything that's really pertinent to this discussion. I mean, is there any questions that I should have asked that I didn't? You're so nice. Thank you so much for having me on. I think the core issue is that we're social creatures. It's no burden for us to be in groups, to be in companies, to be together. That's what humans do. That's what social creatures do. And that can be a very enjoyable experience. But the two parts that are necessary, and we've only talked about one, one is a trusted team. If I think those people don't have my back or they're going to stab me in the back, that's, again, going to take bandwidth away from performance. But the team also has to know why we're doing what we're doing. So I call this purpose, right? We've got to have this lived purpose. We've got to know not only who I'm working with, but why we're doing what we're doing. And I call this transcendent purpose. How do we improve the world? So the only reason any of us get paid to do anything is because we're improving people's lives. This is right out of Peter Drucker and Edwards Deming, which I think are the two greatest management gurus of the 20th century, that you've got to have this lived purpose. And when that lived purpose is part of every conversation at work, part of every conversation with a client, they know why we're doing this. And experiments mm-hmm. we have in our lab show that purpose is also an oxytocin stimulant. So now I have a double whammy, high trust, high purpose. Those organizations rock and roll. You can't stop them because people just love what they're doing and they understand that the reason they're getting paid is because they're making a powerful impact on individuals and societies. All right. Give us a closing remark, uh, maybe a, a short takeaway, a key takeaway to keep us inspired as we let you go. What would that be? The most important thing is that you've got to love the people around you in the filia sense, right? Let's be clear here. So love your customers, love your employees, employees create value, have their backs at all times, be a team member, wear the same shirt, get rid of the stupid $5,000 suits, roll up your sleeves and get to work like everybody else. You'll be an effective leader. It's been a blast, man. Enjoyed hanging out with you. It's the best. Hey, if, if people want to connect with you, let's uh, give them some websites and give that immersion website one more time. But where can they go? They can find me at getimmersion.com. You can find out more about me at pauljzack.com. Happy to connect. If you've got questions, reach out. Happy to interact with you. Well, check out Paul's books, Moral Molecule and Trust Factor, available everywhere. 
And that wraps it up over here. So join the conversation. And if you want to comment on this episode, you can do so with hashtag love in action podcast and look for my show notes on my website, marcelschwantes.com. I'll make sure to include Paul's resources and website links and all that for you to connect with him. I'm coming right back as I always do with my one action item from this great conversation with Paul Zach to help you become a better leader. Okay, my action item is plain and simple. Are you a leader? Whatever level you're at on that org chart, your first priority is to build trust. Paul and I gave you a few ideas of how to do that. And his book, Trust Factor, will give you all eight management behaviors that foster trust. So the one that I feel is the most important one, I already mentioned it earlier, is going to make all other seven that much easier. It's intentionally building relationships. So what is one thing, just one, that you can do right now to connect better to your employees, to help them feel like they belong and are part of a team? to help you get to know them better as a valued worker. And I'm saying this because we as leaders often have tunnel vision and we we only think about the results, the strategy, the bigger picture, and we forget the people. We forget the relationships. So that's your action item. Put it into play and watch the human magic happen. That wraps it up. Thank you, Love and Action Tribe, for joining the conversation. And please spread the love by sharing this episode. And finally, hey, we're always looking for business sponsors to help us grow. So if you're interested, you can reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the love in action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.